Hey there, my name is Carrie Sieber. I am a structural engineer with Vector Collaborative and also your host of The Unboxing Project. I am so glad that you're here joining us for season number two at Keep Coming Back. Eva Borden with us. She is the Vice President of Behavioral Health at Evernorth, which is a newly formed company, which is uh, part of the Health Service Division of Cigna Healthcare. Um, she went to school at Lafayette College, uh, got her degree in actuarial science, uh, and also a degree in Spanish. Is this correct? Yes, actually my degree was in theoretical math and okay. Spanish, but I'll tell you a little bit later how I turned that into becoming an actuary. Sure. Okay, thank you very much. Um, and then you also traveled abroad, I believe, um, in Spain and Argentina, mm -hmm. correct? Correct. All right, and you are a fellow of the Society of Actuaries. That is correct. And I would like to get into that a little bit too eventually because I know that that is a pretty laborious process. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so uh, maybe if we could just start, if you could tell me just a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, how you got involved um, or interested in math, and kind of what led you into the career path that you took. Sure. So uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I'm the oldest of five. Okay. And um, I was in a school um, that it just I was able to do a lot of different things that I enjoyed. And so it really was, it was about when I was in high school, or actually it was middle school. I loved math. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed algebra, pre-algebra. And it was my 10th grade year when I was taking geometry and I was doing really well. So I ended up having like 101 grade point average just because oh I had extra credit. And so, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah. But I remember sitting in the back of the class and like I would listen to the teacher and pay attention. But um, I also had someone that, you know, as teenagers are apt to do, I would talk to people around me, et cetera. And it was actually my teacher who approached my mom and said, you know, she really needs to think about doing more with math. And so it was my mom who became more intent on, you know, you really, and began planting the seed, you really might enjoy math, you really might enjoy math. And I was like, no, because I had wanted to be a doctor from the time I was like 10 years old. Okay. So I had always said on the fact I wanted to be a doctor, I was going to be a doctor. So I started in college as going pre-med. Okay. So I took my biology and my chemistry and I took my calculus and it was about partway through my first semester that Gary Gordon, who was one of the professors, uh, called me to his office and he said, can we talk about something? And I said, sure. And he said, you know, you really need to major in math. And I was like, really? And he goes, yeah. He's like, you, it just comes very naturally to you. You, you really should consider it. And I was like, well, what would I do with a career in math? I don't want to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. That was not, I, I don't have the patience to be a teacher. It's not my natural inclination. And so he said, no, but there's, there's a lot of things you can do. And so I enjoyed biology and I enjoyed chemistry, but not like I loved math. I loved what do you the think challenge that was? of math. So what do you think it was about math? Was it the process or like what, what brought, like what made it interesting to you? The problem solving. Okay. And it was this, it was a way to break down problems. And it was interesting because I was actually, I have three children. I have a 17 year old son, a 14 year old son, and a 14 year old daughter. And I was talking to my 14 year old son and 
he and I were talking about the fact of how much I loved algebra. And he was saying, Mom, I don't like algebra. I like probability and statistics because it's something you can solve for and you can, it's, I know that there's an answer. There's something very specific out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I actually really like the theoretical part. Like I loved the a squared plus b squared or a, a x squared plus bx plus c. I loved that and trying to figure out what it all meant and how it fit together. And I didn't actually care. For me, it wasn't about the process of, oh, it has to yield this exact answer because I can tangibly see what it means in the world. It was this, like, puzzle. Yeah. It was a problem. It was a yep. puzzle. And you could solve it and come up with something. And if you couldn't, like, eventually you could get all the right pieces in place. Mm -hmm. And so that's I ended up going, I ended up changing my major to math. And I remember telling my parents, and they were like, what are you going to do with a math major? And I was like, I don't know. I'll do consulting. I'm a freshman. I'll figure it out. And so that was kind of part of my journey. And I loved, and the, the more that I took the math classes, the more I realized it was a really good fit for me. Okay. And the ironic part was there were only four math majors my year. Lafayette only has like 500 plus students in a graduating class. Okay. There were four math majors maybe four to six of us, I forget, something around there. And at least half of us majored in foreign languages and okay. in math. Okay. And one of the things, and it made so much sense when they talked about it, is they said it's really common that people who like math actually like foreign languages because it's that same puzzle of how do I fit different letters, structures, things together to communicate a different idea. I can totally see that because I feel like math is another language. Like, that's how I describe it to people. If people are like, oh, I don't like math so much. It's like, well, you just haven't learned the language yet. Right. So I could, yeah, that, that makes sense. You see it in sense. music too. Mm -hmm. People who really understand music or understand how music gets put together, oftentimes they enjoy math. They enjoy that problem solving. They enjoy how to use, how to use different structures, whether it be nodes, whether it be different languages, whether it be, you know, whatever it is, mm -hmm. in order to create an idea. Sure, yes. idea. Yes. So, with, with, to back up a little bit, um, so when you went to Lafayette College, you were like you—that's the college you went to, majoring in pre-med, right? So you yes. switched over, stayed in the same university, and switched over to math. Correct. Okay. Okay. So, so then explain a little bit how that path went together. So then you were like, oh, foreign language and math. So, so then what happened from there? So at that point, I didn't know. So back to the the question my parents asked me, which was. Uh, what are you going to do when you graduate? You know, I, I'm coming upon my junior year, and I don't know exactly what I'm going to do because I don't I don't know what the opportunities really are. A lot of people were going into consulting those days. The economy, by the time I was a senior, it was 99. The economy was just booming. So mm -hmm. lots of job opportunities, etc. But in my junior year, um, I was walking along, and this is the days pre, you know, bulletin boards on your phone. Like, this is, like, real bulletin boards are sure. hanging in the math hallway and Etna had actually put up a sign that said if you're so smart then what's an actuary I was like well that is a good question because I do not know the answer I should figure out what the answer to that question is and so I end up going and I learned that actuaries essentially use math to begin to estimate um, what types of risk, to be able to quantify risk. So you think about it like as it relates to insurance. Like Insurance is really just the calculation of risk. What's the probability that 
for like an auto insurance, what's the probability that someone's going to have a car accident? And based on that, what's the average value of the car? What's the average value of the damage? What's the average and how often that happens? And what does it mean? And what does it look like? And how do you put it together? Mm -hmm. But it's all big guesses. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up, I applied for an internship actually with Cigna. Okay. And it was shortly after that. And these are kind of one of the, like I think about this as a career decision moment. Um, I had just finished uh, uh, interviewing for my Cigna internship and my favorite math professor came to me and said, will you stay here your junior year and study the nth dimension? And so like that was really in my wheelhouse from a, um, from a theoretical math perspective. Cause truly like, I mean, you're talking about way abstract kind of stuff at that point. Yes, so I have taken many, many math classes and I don't know what the nth dimension is. So what does that mean? Can you elaborate well, what that means? So what it is is like in math you can take, so oftentimes we operate and like we operate in four dimensions, you know, time being you have the three dimensions add in time and you've got the four, four dimensions. Well, mathematically there are N, like N as in Nancy, N dimensions out there. Mm -hmm. Mathematically there can be multiple sure. dimensions. And so what does that mean and what does it look like? Mm -hmm. And so I mean, it's kind of like for me, part of a lot of people would say, oh, I didn't like calculus. I didn't enjoy it. And I'm like, when I think about what calculus is, it's essentially the ability to take anything, any space, and be able to numerically quantify it. Mm -hmm. Integration and derivatives and figure out areas. Yeah, like uh -huh. you can begin to figure out where points in space are and what that looks like. And so you can get really out there and say, well, with nth dimension kind of stuff, you can actually say, well, now I've got to go to places I can't even see or quantify. I mean, it's kind of like the, the points, if you say how many points are between 0 and 1 in the number line, there's an infinite number of points because mm -hmm. you can always get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Like you would always go that one notch down. Yeah. It's like to mentally be able to picture that, it's, it, that's kind of what the nth dimension is. So it's just okay. kind of continuing to prove out that area of mathematics and what does it mean and mm -hmm. pretty cool stuff. Um, but... I, hadn't, I clearly hadn't studied it yet, and so he wanted me to stay, and I said, well, here's the deal. If I get the internship at Cigna, I'm going to go intern there. If I don't, then I'm going to stay here. And this is the end of your junior year? The end of my junior year. Okay. So this is the summer between my junior and senior year. And so I go for my internship at Cigna, and after I go for week one, and I reach the end of week one, I call my mom, and I'm like, you know, I really like this, but it's just one week. Like, let's just see what happens. Yeah. So then I go to week two, and the end of it, I'm like, I really like this. And as time went on, I found that I really enjoyed it. Because what I learned, and this is one of the things I think about, I share with my kids all the time, it's math isn't about can you do the equation, it's how do you think about and solve a problem. Mm -hmm. And if I think about even now, you know, 20 plus years removed from then, it's all about how do you break down problems? Mm -hmm. How do you think through step by step by step? Because being a theoretical math major, what you're doing is you're proving everything out. Like my whole existence revolved around take this abstract thing and prove it out. So for example, we used to, there was the hardest class I ever took in math was real analysis. Real analysis is essentially proving out calculus without any numbers. There are no numbers involved, but you have to prove out calculus. What's the tool? Like, how do you prove it out without numbers? Well, you just, you have paper and they say you need to, like, you would old school, 
proof writing. Okay. okay. So you would yes. just have to write okay. proofs. Mm -hmm. And literally, these proofs would be pages upon pages long. So proofs being things that have been stated as true. Yeah. So you use all of these truths that are proofs that, that have been proven, and then you have enough pluses to get to the answer, or enough proofs to get to the answer. Right? Yeah, so it would be something like, if I believe that something is true, I have to start with things that are true and build upon it. So I know this thing to be true. If I know this to be true, then I know this to be true. If I know this to be true, then I know this to be true. Therefore, this must be true. And you literally stepwise walk it through to say, like, essentially, when we end calculus, we have, we have the privilege of having all of these already solved for equations that somebody else already proved out mm -hmm. that we can accept yep. and say, this is a fact mm -hmm. because somebody else also did, also did it. Our job was to reprove it. Okay. Start from the beginning and say, how did you build it up? Mm -hmm. But the beauty is when you work through these things, you can never make an assumption. Or if you do, you have to explicitly say it. You okay. can't just go through and say, you know, if this, then this, if this, then this. Because the one thing, like, your professors are always looking for is, no, 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 you, if this, then this, you assumed this. Or not, you know, if and only if. Yeah. This is the case. Or, like, there's there's a whole language, to your point on the language earlier, there's a whole language that goes along with it. Sure. And so... As you walk through these things, it's like you have, you build on it and you, you can't skip steps. You have to know that this leads to this leads to this leads to this. And the challenge is you spend more time getting it wrong than you do getting it right. But you learn how to press on. You learn how to put the stepwise thinking into play. You learn how to not skip steps. Mm -hmm. You learn how to break things down. You learn how to communicate it. Mm -hmm. Because if you can't write it down and get it effectively communicated, it can't be true. Yeah, because nobody can, nobody else can validate right. that it's true. Right, right, and it's like even a small little assumption makes it invalid. <laughs> right, and it's amazing. Like you will, I mean, I remember times I would pour. I would have like five handwritten this days handwritten writing handwritten pages mm -hmm. of proofs, and like halfway through my first paragraph, I made an assumption. Shoot. So everything's lost. Everything <laughs> else is gone. Yeah. So you go back and you're like, I, I mean, I still have, um, I still have my pencil that I use. I use a mechanical pencil and it is like worn so clear. And, but I always had that. And then I had erasers like that were equal size, you know, your pencil that's this size. I always had erasers that were this big and I would go through erasers oh my gosh. so fast <laughs> because you're constantly like, Writing and trying and writing and trying. And so it's like, I mean, you almost think about how computers or other things do things. Like they go through and they say, okay, this process, nope, doesn't work. Yep. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. To, oh, this works. It's Great. like computer programming, really. Exactly. Like, that's trial and error, the same type of thing. Right. So, so this is your senior class, right? Then, so you're, you're figuring out how to prove calculus without numbers. Right. And so, and so these are all the things that um, I learned. So that was my hardest, that was the hardest class mm -hmm. I took. And that was a part of um, math. But when I think about becoming an actuary, it was taking all of those things that I learned. So I learning about communication, learning about problem solving, learning about other things and figuring out, okay, how can I apply this to a business context? Mm -hmm. And so I interned, I ended up really enjoying it. And I was like, I think I'll try my hand at this actuary thing. Okay. As opposed to doing consulting or other things like that. Sure. 
And so I graduated. Um, and because I hadn't gone to an actuarial school, like, so there's certain colleges that have actuarial science degrees. Okay. I didn't get one. I didn't even know what it, I didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. And so, um, as I go through, once you graduate, I think one of the things I appreciate about the actuarial field is once you graduate, there's a series of, at that time, this is, it changes every handful of years, but the time I was doing it, there were eight exams you had to take mm -hmm. in order to become an actuary. And on average, you had to study between about three and 500 hours per exam. And they, you only passed somewhere around 30 to 35% of the people who took it. Wow. That's crazy. So how often would you sit for an exam then? Twice a year. Twice Every a year. Every May and October. But it was like a full-time job pretty much to study for that. It was. And the beauty was we also got, um, I was working full-time. So they would give us like 100 hours of study time. So okay. I lived, because when I graduated, I got married right out of college. I graduated, I went to work for Cigna. I lived about, because of where my husband's job was and my job was, I lived not quite an hour away. And I can remember, I would try to be on the road no later than 5 a.m. So I could be to work at 6 a.m. So I could be studying from about 6 to 8 or 9 in the morning. Okay. So I could then work until 5 or 6. Oh my gosh. Turn around and drive home and do it over again. And then I... I would study on the weekends at least a half a day, or when it got really close, you would study full days on the weekends. Was that open book or not? No. no <laughs> Our not. tests were open book. <laughs> just for records. So. No, they were not open book. That would have been really handy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so you had to memorize all of this stuff then. Oh, yeah. There was, and it, it, I mean, I think part of it was um, the one valuable lesson I got out of that more than anything else was, you know, you go to a, a lot of times in high school and college, you have people who are teaching you. Mm -hmm. So you have teachers who say, here's the content, this is what I want you to learn, you need to learn it. Mm -hmm. And becoming an actuary, nobody teaches you. They hand you the books, they hand you the syllabus, they hand you, and you might get to go for a week to a, a study session, but otherwise, okay. it's all you. What about on-the-job training of other actuaries? So the exams are different from real-life jobs. Gotcha. Okay. So it wasn't like you'd have other actuaries who might understand, but most of them are studying for their own exams. Okay. So we, yeah. we you, you had camaraderie. Okay. Of we're all in this together and being tortured, but sure. we're choosing this and we're in it together. But the part that it taught me was how to learn on my own. Like okay. I don't need a teacher sure. to be able to learn. I can, someone can hand me a book and I can learn it. Someone mm -hmm. can hand me something and I can do it. Like, it was incredibly empowering throughout life when I think of different people I know who are like, oh, I don't have someone to teach it to me. I'm like, you don't need somebody to teach it to you. Yeah. But there's a lot of, like, in that time, the six months of preparing for that, the three to 400 hours, you had to set up an infrastructure of like, okay, this is what I'm going to do here. This is what I'm going to do here so that you get to the end game so that you're not, you know, like you have to set up some sort of plan for that. And I'm sure that is kind of probably what you're kind of talking about. Like you can carry that plan over to other aspects of your life for preparing for things and getting to a goal. Totally. Oh. So how long did it take you then? Because you are a fellow. So how long did it take you to get your all eight tests passed? <laughs> um, it took me four and a half years. Okay, which is amazing, because that's taking one every six months. Yes, yes. Uh, I, was, I was very happy. 
Yeah. I was very happy to get done so quickly. And it's funny how time puts everything in perspective. I remember when I was going through it and thinking, oh my gosh, it'll never end. I will never get there. It'll. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, it's almost this distant memory. Sure. Yeah. So of the tests, so those eight tests, how much do you think, like how broad is the testing compared to what you apply in your job? Like obviously I know we can talk about now how it's much different, but like when you were first starting out, how much of what you learned from your testing and um, all the study materials are is actually applied into the type of job? Like I'm guessing your job was more specialized than the broad generalization of the testing? Totally. Okay. Because okay. there's really, to be an actuary, there's two different paths you can take. You can become a property and casualty actuary. Okay. Like homeowner's insurance, sure. um, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Car insurance, etc. Their, the other arm is um, life and a life and health actuary, and that's okay. what I did. So if you think about like the first couple of areas, and even just if I was thinking about, I don't, I'm not as familiar with the exam process today, but generally you're talking about um, probability and statistics. You're talking about um, what they call life contingencies. So a lot of a lot of it is if someone survives to X point or this thing happens. So if you imagine if I if I make it through the exam, like you just think life contingencies obviously relate a lot relate a lot to life insurance. So if I live to age fifty five, what's the probability I'm going to live to age eighty? Okay, yep, that's life contingencies. That I didn't really use because I was a health actuary. Mm-hmm. So health is a little different. Life is very long term. I'm going to buy a whole life policy and sure. you're going to insure me for 50 years. Sure. Versus okay. health is tends to be very short term. You have relatively short tails on mm-hmm. things, meaning, you know, by the time most of your claims are going to run out in a year, 18 months at most. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, if you think about it, there are pieces. So in terms of the exam process, there's the math part that you have to know that's helpful. There's some that's relevant, some that's not. By the time, though, that you hit the upper exams, like my last exam was all health-based, and then you're learning a lot around. So the two upper, um, one of them relates to investments okay. and how do you invest and what do you do and what are sure. financial tools which you need to know about. And the other one's all about health, like what's the difference between an HMO and a PPO and what's health law look like and okay. what's happening. And, and it obviously has changed a lot over the past 20 years. Yeah, right. Well, but. even just life expen- expectancy um, has changed a ton. But like as you're speaking, I'm thinking about all the different things that you need to know. You have to know the math side of it, but then back to your pre-med side of you know your interest in that early on in your career. You have to interact with doctors on on a very frequent basis, I would guess, or at least understand the different terminology and the things that they do because that plays into health insurance so much. Sure, because what you're talking about is amassing. So if you think about everything that doctors do and the services they perform, how do they get paid for it? And how do you charge enough money? So insurance companies, what they do is they aggregate money that people bring so they pool money people everybody pays their premium they pool the money and then they redistribute it out to the doctors Mm -hmm. so it's not insurance companies don't actually print any money it's all this concept of pooling so everybody pays a little so that those who in any given year have a lot to pay out we can afford that and those who have less have less but overall the amount of money that's coming into the pool is sufficient to pay the doctors well you have to understand medical advances Mm-hmm. You have to understand pharmacy advancements. You have to understand the changing laws. You have to understand practice patterns and how those are evolving. You have to understand how provider reimbursement is changing. 
You have to, I mean, there's so many pieces and parts that go into it. And it's incredibly, especially in the U.S., our, our healthcare system is so incredibly complex in terms of just all the intricacies of how everything fits together. It's, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating, so if I put it back in some of the things, terms we've been talking about, it's like, a, it's a fascinating system mm-hmm. to ultimately figure out how to navigate, put together, um, how does all, how, do, how does it all fit and how do all the pieces work? So what's the leg time of that? So as you're talking about the complexities of this, what's, so as an actuary, and as an actuary, you're going through the calculations, you're going through and figuring out what the risk assessment is. How long does it take for that to get implemented like into Cygnus program? You know, so like, does that make sense? Sort of. It's not that long. Okay. Because if you think about it, so typically you look back a year in this year to project out the next year. So you're usually looking at around three years, maybe a little more. Okay. The fun part is, so there's pieces that you can do that's very practical along those lines. What happened last year? Where are we now? What happened in the future? That's some of what makes... Like COVID made it really interesting. Now I I was not our I'm not our pricing actuary. I'm not speaking on behalf of our pricing actuaries, um, but it just kind of blew up the whole system. Yeah. So we love like especially as numbers people, we love trends. Mm-hmm. Like if I look at the past, my past is surely going to be a predictor of my future. Sure. Yeah. 2010 blew that out of the water. Yeah. 2020. Yes. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> 2010, 2020, and whatever year it happens to be. I gotcha, I gotcha. But 2020 really transformed how do you think about that? Like, what do you do? How do you predict? I mean, there's, I currently work in the behavioral health space, and I, I was talking with our chief medical officer, who was a psychiatrist, and he and I were saying, in January of 2020, we were having this discussion, we were saying, you know, we believe that the future of behavioral health is going to be virtual care, meaning I don't need to go see someone face-to-face, brick and mortar, I can do it on my phone, I can do it via Zoom, or whatever the right, appropriate, HIPAA-approved chassis is. Um, and at that point, we were running at like 1% to 2% adoption rate on virtual care. Okay. So if you think about think about like how we love trends. Mm-hmm. So I went from like a quarter of a percent to 1% to 2%. So then, you know, maybe this year I'll go to 3 or 4 maybe the next year if I'm lucky I'll hit 8 Like. Yes. But that's how we that we love our regression lines, mm-hmm. our trend lines. Like it's it's a beautiful thing, right? And you know, COVID hit, and we went from one to two percent to sixty. Oh my gosh! Plus out of percent. necessity, out of necessity, right. right? And it was so fun because he and I, it, he and I were saying in January, like we anticipated five to ten years, we'll be at fifty percent. Mm-hmm. Like that's where we wanted to see, and here we are, a handful of months later. Like these are some of the silver linings to COVID. But back to the numbers part. It's one of those things like we can't hold white knuckled onto our projections because the past yeah. isn't always a predictor of the future. Right. You have to be able to adapt very quickly instead of looking in the past, like look ahead to see what you have to adapt to that's new. Right. And that's a really big piece is being able to say, okay, this is what the past tells me. Looking in my rearview mirror, this is what I see, this is where we're going. But what do I know about, and this kind of goes to, what do I know about drugs? What do I know about advancements, like device advancements? Mm-hmm. What do I know about the number of doctors who are graduating from medical school and the number of doctors who are retiring? Mm-hmm. Okay. What do I know about legislation? That's the thing I was going to, that's when you were talking, that's what came to mind because I know you have had to be up on what's going on with legislation too, because that can affect your job so much. 
Yeah. One of my favorite jobs of all time, um, it was December of 2013, I was hired to, or I, I accepted the role inside of Cigna to be the chief risk officer for our Obamacare business. Okay. Now to put that timeline in context, January 2014 is when Obamacare went live. And so it was such an amazing time because it's the only time in my career where literally nobody had ever done it before. You couldn't look to somebody, like there was not a consultant, there's yeah. not someone who had more experience, there was not someone else in the industry, you couldn't hire from someone else. Nobody knew. Yeah. There wasn't it, an expert to go to that knew all about this. Like, right. Level playing field for everyone. And so you're making bets and you're doing the best you can. And so it suddenly became this really big example of agility. How quickly can you get in new information and change? I mean, and there were times like I would, I, I can remember just sitting there watching my feed, waiting for Supreme Court decisions to come down because it would literally change the course of what I did that day. Oh my gosh. Would I do this or would I do this? And so it was just a really interesting time because you you didn't know, you just had to be willing to change on a dime. And some people, like, that's really hard. Like, I, it looks like you are very optimistic about those things and very can-do about that, but I would imagine that sometimes that's difficult too, right? Because you're, like, you're planning to do this and then it throws a wrench in the whole system and you have to switch 180 degrees. Yeah. Oh. Well, and that's one of, um, I think one of my favorite things is early on in my career, so you and I had talked about this um, earlier. Early on in my career, one of the biggest risks I ever had to take was I was kind of following the standard actuarial track. Mm -hmm. And for personal reasons, I had moved away from the headquarters at Cigna. So if you if you envision, I was at the, the home office. So this in is like in Connecticut in 2000. Okay. And um, my husband at the time wanted to go to school in Dallas. And so I said, great. We'll go to school in Dallas. And I went to quit my job. They said, please don't quit. And I started working remotely. So for the past 20 plus years, I've been working remotely. And um, when I ended up going down there, I was very much was on the actuarial track. So being an actuary, you kind of, you know, you're going to do pricing, you're going to do reserving, you might do a few different other things, but you kind of have this prescribed, like, this is how you grow up track. Mm -hmm. And the person that hired me was someone, um, who was a really great mentor to me, was a big advocate in my career. He was the same person who, when I went to quit, said, don't quit, we'll find you something else. And I was trying to find a different, I was trying to find a new role, and I knew it was gonna be more challenging because I was remote, which was very non-standard. Today, right. it's very standard, then it was very non-standard. Um, Especially and, in your industry. Oh my gosh. It wasn't it, like sales, like territorial sales or something like that. You know, like in your industry, I'm sure that was very unheard of then as well to work remotely. Oh my gosh. Nobody did it. Yeah. Nobody did it. I mean, I can remember everybody would be sitting around a conference table and I'd be the only person on the phone. And I learned, I mean, the nice part is I learned really early how do you have a presence? Even if you can't be there in person, how do you still create a presence? What yeah. does it mean? Um, but this person, he was, um, he's the one who helped me find, keep my job at Cigna. I was, I was very grateful to him. And so I was looking for my next role and I was approached to take a role to do, to support sales. Mm -hmm. And so my whole, this job would have been, 
um, going out and meeting with clients who have more than 5,000 plus, most of them had 20,000 plus employees, and to take them their reports on a quarterly basis and to walk them through their results, what are the things they could see or do differently, what do we think their future of healthcare costs are going to be like, because for, for a lot of employers, healthcare costs are one of their biggest spends. Sure. And so I was between that and more of a standard actuarial job, and I remember talking to this um, this mentor of mine, and he felt very, very strongly that me taking this role with sales was going to be a really bad choice. Was passionate about it. Okay. And I was less passionate around the fact that I thought it was a really good choice. Mm -hmm. And I can, I made the decision that I was going to take the job with sales. Okay. And I can remember calling him, and he was so disappointed. I mean, he felt like it was a waste of my talent. It was a waste of, it was a waste for the company. It was just not a good choice on a lot of levels. How many years of experience did you have at that point? Four or six. Yeah, so new experience. So I was in my 20s. Yeah. I was in my 20s. And I remember, because um, I was a brand new, I must have been a brand new fellow at the time, because I, I was not taking exams when I went and did it, so I must have been a brand new fellow. And, um, but being willing to let him down, it was the best decision I had made. That's awesome. That's so brave. <laughs> well, and and it, it ended up working out well, because of all of those things, like it goes back to something, you, you made me think of it, because... I had learned all of the technical, this is how you measure trend, this is how you measure healthcare costs, this is what you do. Mm -hmm. I didn't appreciate how do you talk with people who don't understand healthcare? Mm -hmm. How do you make it real? Why does it, I'm all proud of the fact that I got the answer down to 4.7632% mm -hmm. and nobody else did. The people I was working with, they did not care. <laughs> the benefits managers who just really didn't care about math at all, they didn't care. Yeah. How did I make it interesting, meaningful, relevant? And it was the it was such a good example of why I think a lot of times I took for granted why format matters, why how you're selling matters, why how you present things matter, why making it relevant matters. I can remember um, talking with someone I was working with and she was asking me for some feedback and I said, I think a lot of times as math people, um, and she was, um, she had a, a PhD in, I think it was in statistics, I forget exactly what her degree is, but a brilliant woman. And she's like, I don't understand why people don't want to listen to what I have to say. She's like, you listen. And I said, well, I, I listen because I'm intrigued by your process. Most people who aren't math people, the way they think about it is, it's like a marathon runner. I don't want to relive the marathon with you. I want to know your time, maybe one or two of your highlights, and that's it. Right. You feel really, really proud of the fact that you did all this work, and it's so great and so amazing, and you want people to feel the pain and the energy that you had in creating it, and they really just care about the answer. Right. You earned the seat at the table. To just present the answer? Yeah. All you had to give was the answer. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. But another thing, too, like like when you have to go talk to clients and stuff, too, I mean, these are big accounts for Cigna, and you have to, as math people, so much of it 
it like we have our feelings about our math, but like not human connection isn't necessarily taught in school. Like we're taught more on the other side of the brain, so we're taught more just about just factual stuff. And you have to go out and and talk to these very important clients and take their feelings into account too. You can't just like give them just the facts. Like you have to like kind of take care of them a little bit too so that you get return business, right? Well, it, it, yes, and I think some of it, it goes to back to influencing. I can remember getting really frustrated early in my career where, you know, here I was, the actuary, I'd spent all this time understanding the trend of a certain market, and I would go in to meet with the market president, and I was like, okay, your market trend is X percent. Um, this is what we need to price your business at, and he'd be like, yeah, I don't like that. I'm going to go with this, and I'm like, I'm an actuary. Like, I know how to do it. What, what are you talking about? And there was a great book, um, Switch, that um, I read, and it talks about the elephant and the writer. And when I read it, all of a sudden it resonated so clearly for me is because I think a lot of times we expect people that if we present them with facts to make rational decisions, but they're not always going to do that. Right. Just because we present facts doesn't mean that they're going to decide in keeping with the facts. Mm -hmm. That you have to equally, so that's, you know, that's the writer. The writer's the logical one who's writing the element who can say, well, you should do this or this or this. There's that. Then there's, um, the elephant is the one where there's emotion that comes into play. There's the way that they think it, that, you know, the, the elephant, ultimately, the writer can guide the elephant, but if the elephant says, I want to go in a different direction, the elephant's going to go in a different direction. Yeah. And there's a lot of piece that comes into understanding and being able to start thinking, well, it's not enough. Like I just, especially my job now, I just can't present facts all day long. I need to give people a reason to believe. Yeah. They want to believe and my facts should support why they should believe. So it's almost like you have to tell a truthful story, but you have to like tell a story. I think a story sometimes gets taken as like not truth, but you have to tell them a story that's, you know, factual based, but still like write something for them almost like be the writer, right? Totally. You have yeah. to be, you have to have the, you have, storytelling is so powerful. It's one of those things like I think about, I'm thankful for my, my favorite math professor I told you about earlier. He was really passionate about the fact that people in math have to be good writers. Mm -hmm. And it's true because you have to tell a story. Mm -hmm. You have to take all of those things and you have to be able to one, communicate it, but two, help people, even for people who are, because you have certain people, like I've learned now, like the people that I work with, who's going to naturally approach it from a fact-based perspective? So if they have the facts, they're going to feel good. Mm -hmm. Who needs the emotion that I can, I can water the facts in with it, meaning water, like I would water seeds. So yeah. do I plant seeds of facts first? Do I plant seeds of emotion first? And do I water with facts or do I water with emotion? Okay. What do you do? Yes. And where do people fall? But you you have to give them both. Yeah. Interesting. So how much has your career, to, like how much has your job function changed over the years in that regard? Because I would guess like <laughs> the watering part of that, like that's something you've probably evolved to figure out um, as you get more and more into dealing and working with people. Um, but yeah, I guess how has it changed since you started? Wildly. I think my favorite part of my career is, so I've been at the same, I've been at Cigna the Enterprise for 20, going on 21 years. Um, I have had radically different roles all throughout. 
So I had my kind of standard actuarial pieces. Mm -hmm. I had the part where I met with national clients, which was super, super helpful because I learned how do you sell, how do you share, how do you do, you know, different things like that. I did, I think one of the most fascinating roles that gave me such appreciation was I did the business side of IT support. Okay. So like literally I can remember writing release plans, like which are these crazy things that say, okay, we have new code we're gonna put into the system. So we're gonna put new code into the system you do these steps and you do checkout and then if something goes wrong, you have to roll back plans. And okay. I mean, literally being on the phone at 3 a.m. I can remember lying on my couch and just being like, don't fall asleep, don't fall asleep, don't fall asleep. Because <laughs> that's the best time to roll out new IT stuff. Well, yeah, because otherwise when it comes up in the morning, you have thousands of nurses and others who are going to get on the systems. Yeah. So you have between like 8 p.m. and 7 a.m. Okay. 9 p.m., 7 a.m to do what you're gonna do. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, but part of what I liked about that was a lot of people know how to drive cars. Not everyone knows how to pop the hood and figure out how to make things work. That taught me a lot about what was under the hood. Okay. Then one of the roles, I switched from large national accounts, IT, into individual business. I mean, and that's where I read um, part of the book, or I read the book, um, the Honest Truth About Dishonesty, because when you have individuals choosing things, there's a, so much more of a propensity of fraud that I had never experienced before. Like, I, had, I was so naive that I was like, I can remember saying to someone like, I have to think like, if I wanted to cheat the system, what would I do? Because if I, like I'm a chief risk officer, I need to know where our weaknesses are. I right. need to know. You're like the hacker. Exactly, I'm like, if I wanted to hack the system, what would I do? And so, um, and then and that actually, it was, it was actually through that that I became acquainted with behavioral health, okay. which is what I do now. And I lead our whole behavioral health business. But through that, like, there's all these pieces. So that's like the job function. Mm -hmm. But with each job function, it was, how do you learn how to do strategy? How do you learn how to go from what started as a few months to a few, like, to now, like, multi-five-year plus strategies? How do you lead teams of people? You go from leading one or two to now I have about 1,500 people. How do you help guide people who don't report to you? Yeah, because there's no way 1,500 people, there's no way you can have um, an active interaction with each one of those people. No, well, and a lot of your other leaders don't report to you. They report to other people. So in a company, Cigna has 70,000 employees. You have... A lot of the people I have to work with don't report directly to me. Mm -hmm. And so how do I influence them? How do I help guide us all in the same direction, knowing that they're not looking to me for their direction? They might sum up, but they don't report to me. I'm not their boss. Mm -hmm. But how do I get them to buy into the vision of where we're going, knowing that I'm not the boss? So how, do, how have you, like, what are some keywords that come to mind um, in doing that successfully? I don't know that I have keywords, what I can tell you is um, finding common ground. So when you think about working with people and influencing them, a lot of it has to be around influence and giving them a reason to buy into how can my, what I need to get done, help them get done what they already need to do. Okay. So as opposed to it being about me, it becomes about them. What's their goal? Where do they need to go? What do they need to get done? And I think a lot of times like, for me, a huge piece of it is this, I remember having this realization in my career where it was people 
don't think about like oftentimes I used to worry about oh my gosh what do people think about me what are they thinking are, are they am I doing this right am I not and I'm like people spend most of the time thinking about themselves and so if I switch my paradigm on that and say as opposed to it being about what do you think about me it what if I focus on what makes you look good mm -hmm. if I help you look good you're more incentivized to help me get done what I need to do right and so like all of those pieces, if it's, you know, different words that come to mind could be collaboration, it could be aligning incentives, it could be a lot of listening, willingness to adapt, willingness to say, um, how do my goals, like I have to keep my majors as my majors, and then knowing that I might have to adapt some of my minors in order to keep with them. So those are, I mean, those are all things that I think about when you're constantly trying to navigate, but a huge amount of, I think I probably use more understanding of people and personalities more now than I ever have in my career. Yeah, that's going to be difficult too, because just like you were talking earlier about the, you know, what do, what do you water with and how some people are factual based, some people are emotion based and knowing that and like digging into what their feelings are, what their, what their motivation is, right? So that you can play to that or um, address their motivation or empower their motivation maybe is a better way to put it. Totally. I think one of the things like I've been trying to work on recently is taking time, um, especially when you're leading, I, know, I have to be really aware of the fact that when I speak something, oftentimes I can suck all of the air out of the room when it comes to good ideas because it becomes, oh, Eva said therefore we must. So a couple of things. Number one, I'm often like, I am throwing this out as an idea. This does not mean anyone should go do it. Please don't go do it. We're just talking and brainstorming. Yeah. Number two, how do I pause? And so it's like, um, one of the things I've been doing lately is if I ask a question or if a conversation's happening and I'm really trying hard not to weigh in, counting to five. So after, the after it ends, leave the silence open for one, two, three, four, five. It feels like an eternity. Yeah. But for people who process, need time to process, for people who might be more reluctant to speak up, for people, it, it buys space. Mm -hmm. It's probably one of the hardest things I have to do though. Because I would guess you're where you're at because you're able to make, not only because of this, but one of the characteristics is because you're able to make split time decisions and go, you know, go with those gut instincts right away. But then when you have to hold back because you don't want to influence other people's ideas, right? Like you want your team to be able to collaboratively um, come up with ideas, right? And not just take yours. <laughs> totally. Because they're the ones who know it. Mm -hmm. So it gets into this idea. Like it's just these are part of the growing pieces. I mean, I remember someone who gave me career advice and I love the way he described it. He said, you know, your career becomes like firefighting. So in your first couple of jobs, you're literally given the flames and you are expected to put the flames out. And so and you, when you get really good at putting the flames out, then you go up and you can have a couple of people. And you rely on them to put, get, put the flames out, but you can still see all the fires, all the flames, and you can make sure everything gets out. Mm -hmm. And he said... As you move up in your career, he said, you get to the point where now all you see are the big flares. You can no longer see all the fires. You cannot, you can no longer see that all the fires are being put out, but what you become aware of are the big flares. 
And how do you manage through the big flares? How do you make sure it doesn't grow into a fire that's going to be all consuming? How do you, and that's a really hard part when it comes to control. Yeah. That you have to be willing to say, I can't control it all. Mm-hmm. And that's really scary. Yeah. Especially if you were someone who started out being really good at putting out the fire. Mm-hmm. Who then grew and said, I can be really good at making sure a team of people put out the fires. But making that transition from, I can see all the fires, I can put all the fires out, I can manage all the fires, to stepping back and saying, I have to manage the big flares. And I have to make sure that the fire stays generally contained. Mm-hmm. And you have to trust that person over there to do their part to keep it contained and over here. Right. And not even really know what they're doing, but just know that you trust them. Right. Okay. Well, I I only manage one person, so (laughs) it's a little different. (laughs) So, um, okay. So a question for you then. This, okay, this is something that I remember hearing from you many years ago where you were like, when I interview new people to start, the thing that I look for most is curiosity. If they are curious, if they want to learn. So, Eva Borden, what are you curious <laughs> about? <laughs> so I think, <laughs> when I think about, so first of all, you're absolutely right. Curiosity to me is something that is paramount because if someone's curious, the chances are they're gonna be a lifelong learner. And you have to be open to, in our environment, you have to be open to constantly learning. It can't be what I knew then, how I knew it when. It has to be, how do I change? How do I adapt? How do I do different things? I think things that I'm curious about. Um, I have three teenagers, so I'm really curious about how the teenage mind works. <laughs> I'm really curious why teenage girls spend so much time on TikTok. I'm really working through that, <laughs> trying to understand it. I'm really curious why teenage boys love gaming so much and what it is that and so I think there's a piece of that I think professionally I'm curious on um I think there's a few friends that I'm curious on professionally one is just how the how the field of mental health is evolving or has evolved so you know, there's a field of medical, um, like physical medicine that's been around that we, you know, you can take blood urine or tissue to see if someone's improving. In the mental health space, you can't. And so there's, I'm curious about what are the advancements we're going to see? So are we going to start seeing voice? Are we going to start seeing different types of scans? Meaning like how you interact with something, how you respond, where we can start really evaluating mental health and whether or not people are improving or not. Like I'm, in, I'm curious to see if we're going to, can we get to the place of truly having precision medicine in mental health? Meaning what's the right dose of um, your medical, uh, your um, physical health with your mental health, whether it be drugs, whether it be other therapies, like what are the right types of interventions to help people get to a better place so they can function as the best version of themselves? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's one, that's a big piece that I just spend a tremendous amount of time trying to understand or see where the market's going, where are we seeing, um, where are we seeing the overall trends in treatment going, where are we seeing the future going? So that's like professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think personally, I'm curious on, as I take my job now, I'm in a, 
I'm just in a place of growth. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious on how do you grow and change and as you get bigger challenges, like it always feels like sometimes the way that I think about it, it's like when you first start in your first job, someone gives you a chair and you sit in your chair and you can fill out your chair. You grow to fill out your chair. And every time you get a new chair, it's a bigger chair and you have to mm-hmm. grow into that chair. And I think, um, in this role, it's a lot of like, how do I lead people more effectively? Mm-hmm. How do I create a culture? How do I, and I, I think one of my biggest, you didn't, you asked about curious, not challenges, but I'll kind of, I'll dovetail them into challenges. I think one of the biggest challenges for me right now is I'm, I'm very used to being in an underdog situation. So something's not working, I come in, and those are my favorite. Like, a lot of times, give me the, a lot of people are attracted to the shiny penny. I want to work on the shiny penny, it's the cool new thing. Mm-hmm. Like, no, give me the corroded old penny <laughs> that nobody believes in. I want that. Uh-huh. And thankfully, I mean, I've been working in the behavioral health field for four years now. Um, thankfully, we've seen much more acceptance of it. And so now, it's like in a positive place, and so... I think for me, a lot of it is how do I harness some of the positive places of where we are and kind of ride that upward swing. That's a whole new version of anywhere I've ever been before. Mm-hmm. Where you just in the industry, it's all new. Totally, yeah, definitely. Well, and I see you like just hearing about this new role that you're in with Evernorth and stuff, and I just it's this big chair um, to fill, right? Like it's this big space. But it, when I talk to you, I see it as an op, like I see you viewing it as an opportunity, not as like an intimidation. I see you viewing it as this amazing opportunity, and it's just super inspiring to <laughs> watch you uh, go through that. I guess too, it's like you're not really intimidated by it so much, or you don't seem to be. You're more just kind of excited to um, see where it goes. It is. Well, and it's, it's, I think one of the things I'm always asking myself is, what am I missing? Because it, it's, I find myself, it's interesting, I find myself that I doubt myself in the situations when things are going the best, I doubt myself the most. And it's not a situation of, oh, it can't be going well. Like, it's, it's, things are going well, so how do I make sure I don't miss out? I don't buy, that I'm constantly... How do we get better? How do we go to the next place? How do we push ourselves and not just sitting back and going, oh, it's going to be fine. Like, I don't want to be Kodak. I don't want to sit there and be like, oh, you know, this digital camera thing, it'll be fine. Like, but we make most of our, you know, money on print film. Mm -hmm. So we're going to stick with that. Like, I don't want to be that. And so how, even in the times where things are failing good, it's like, what's the next wave? Where is it going? Where are we seeing? Where are we headed into? Because that becomes so important. Mm-hmm. You hate getting comfortable. Yeah, <laughs> I do. <laughs> so who inspires you? Um, I had thought about this some because, you know, these are one of those questions that you're like, I, I don't want to offend people. Like you're like, of all the people I can choose to be inspired by, and they're like, who are the people I wouldn't say I'm inspired by? It would be, or who I don't say, and they're all of a sudden like, oh no, you're not inspired by. I'm inspired by a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. Yes, there's the blanket answer. Yes, <laughs> everyone's covered. Everyone's covered. <laughs> if I think of the two people um, that I'm most inspired by, it would actually be my sisters. Aww. And for two different reasons, um, I have one sister who 
faced a lot of struggles growing up. Like school was hard. And for me, school was easy. It was, it wasn't like, I didn't have to work that hard. Mm -hmm. She had to work really hard. She had to go to tutoring a couple times a week, had to persevere. Even now, um, has struggles with reading and things like that, but I just look at her and she is someone where all you have to do is tell her you can't, and she's like, Yes, I can. <laughs> I can and I will, and you won't stop me. And she is someone who put in, like, I think about anyone, I think about people who put in hard work. And, you know, it's not that it was easy, it not it wasn't that she always got what she wanted. It was that she just she pressed on. And there are pieces like, now I watch my kids. And um, I think about, for some, school's really easy. For others, it's really hard. And not, like, I, I, I didn't, I took that for granted when I was younger. Mm -hmm. For my other sister, so I have two younger sisters. For my other sister, it's in her adult life, watching her pursue her dreams relentlessly. So she originally moved to Los Angeles to be an actress. She's now writes and produces and does other things. And we were just, um, I actually had a chance to visit her not too long ago and we were on a hike together. And I just sat in awe of how much she is constantly pursuing self-improvement, how much she is pursuing her career, how much she has so many um, things she's going after um, professionally as she manages having two kids, as she manages just all these different things, her genuineness and her realness, but her unwillingness to give up. And I think the one thing is, it's not a blind, so here's one of the things I appreciate about her. It's not a blind, I'm just gonna keep doing it and I'm gonna keep banging my head against the wall. It's been this evolution of growth, of, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and I'm going to change, and I'm going to get smarter, and I'm going to go here, and I'm going to do this. So, anyway, it would be them. Okay. Very cool. And they're so different, too, for different reasons. You yeah. Know? Like, that's cool that you're inspired by them for different reasons. So, well, that's all I have, Eva. So, I just have to say that I am super inspired by you. And I have always thought it's super cool how you work from home in small town Iowa, Nora, <laughs> Iowa. And um, yeah, you're in charge of uh, 1,500 employees and um, who knows how many millions in assets <laughs> for your company. And uh, yeah, you just do it all humbly and <laughs> you would never know that. I feel like if you did, like if someone didn't um, get to know you real well, they wouldn't know. Um, the type of job that you have. So anyway, you inspire me. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Carrie. <laughs>